The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14, specifically to verse 15. John 14, 15. Profound words of our Lord. Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let me remind you of the context of this verse. Jesus is in the upper room. He is sharing this final Passover meal with his disciples. He has told them that he is going away, and for the first time his disciples have realized that he actually means that, that he is leaving. And Jesus has given various comforts to the disciples that he is going to prepare a place for them, that by going to heaven, he is paving the way for them to go to heaven. He he has consoled his disciples. And now, Jesus is giving them instructions for what they are to do in the meantime while they wait. What we are to do in the meantime while we wait. Jesus says this, this is what you are to do in the meantime. If you truly love me, you will keep my commandments. The word love that our Lord uses is agapao, and that word speaks to a sacrificial love. The Greeks had several words for love. The word eros is the word that was used for romantic love, a love that a husband would have for a wife. But this is a love of, of sacrificial giving. This is an unconditional love that Jesus mentions. And he says, if you, and, and that verb that he uses in reference to the disciples is a plural you. He's talking to the remaining 11 that are there. He's saying, if, if you truly love me, you will keep my commandments. The word keep, tereo, means to guard or to watch over. It means to protect. Do you have something in your house? If your house were, you were to go home and your house were to be on fire, there's something in your house, surely, besides a person that you would protect. Maybe it's a pet, whatever it is. I know there's, uh, in, in my front room, there is a helmet. It was the helmet that my dad was wearing at the time of his airplane crash that the search and rescue crews uh, found floating in the ocean. And that helmet, even though we didn't find uh, my dad's body, has always reminded me uh, in Ephesians chapter six, the helmet's the helmet of salvation. And I've always looked to that as just the Lord's kind assurance to my mother and myself that he had taken my, my father home. 
So that would be one thing I would grab. I would grab my Bible, my prayer journal. We all have things like this that you know that you would want to keep, that you would want to protect. And Jesus says this. He says, if you truly love me, agapao, you will keep, you will protect, you will guard these commands, these teachings, these instructions that I have given to you. Interestingly, Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy 4, 7 when he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, I've guarded the faith. Now, what we need to see here is several things that I think are important just to take note of. First, keeping Christ's commands is the evidence of true discipleship, of true Christianity, because that's what true Christianity is, is that you love Christ. What Jesus is saying is, is that the proof of your love is not your profession, it's your obedience. That's an important thing to understand. You can be a preacher of the gospel in many half. You can get Bible verses tattooed on your back. You can put the word Christian in your LinkedIn bio. You can do a lot of things where you profess Christianity. But what Jesus says is the true marker of Christianity is your obedience. It's your desire to do his will. In the Sermon on the Mount, jot down this reference. This is Matthew 7, 21. And these words of our Lord are some of the most startling words in the New Testament. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is the desire to obey Christ that is the evidence of you being a true Christian. Now this doesn't mean that you obey Christ perfectly, I should add. It doesn't mean that you obey Christ perfectly. We all fight against the flesh. We all fight against the devil. We are all tempted by things in the world. And that's part of the reason why Jesus then goes into this whole narrative in the rest of John chapter 14 about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit comes and helps us to obey. But yet the desire to obey is the evidence of you being a Christian. As a pastor, one of the things that often happens is, especially regarding romantic relationships, people reach out to me to inquire my opinion. And oftentimes, I know I've never even met the people that, that loved ones and church members are reaching out to inquire about. And this week, uh, this past week, I, two people reached out to me and had questions about two young men. I thought this was so interesting. One young man, I said, okay, describe, describe this young man to me. And they said, okay, he's uh, a member of his church. He's teaching the college and young adult class. He's serving as a deacon at the church. And occasionally he meets the pastor at 5.30 in the morning to study God's word. I said, okay, this sounds like a pretty good guy. Second conversation this week. Again, 
don't know either of these two gentlemen. I said, has he made a profession of faith? Yes, he has. When he was a kid, he made a profession of faith. He has been baptized. What local church is he in? He's not a member of a church. Do you know if he's reading his Bible? I don't know. Is he living in purity? No, he's living with his girlfriend. You hold up those two examples. Which one looks like a Christian? The one where there's obedience. They both have the profession. They both claim at some point to be a Christian. Yes, I'll wave the Christian flag all day long, but it is the obedience that marks someone as a true Christian. Listen to what our Lord says. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Jesus says in John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It is the fruit that, that the Holy Spirit produces in your life, the obedience that is the evidence of your Christianity. True or false? You're saved by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. True. True or false? The faith that saves is never alone. True. James says, faith without works is dead. If there are no works, it's not a living faith. It wasn't the genuine article to begin with. Turn real quick. I just want to show you this in Galatians chapter 5. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. And, and Paul says, look, if, if you want to just kind of put these two categories here, he's talking about professors, people that profess the name of Christ. He says, look, you have some that are controlled by the flesh, and, and that would be really the unbeliever. And you have some who are controlled by the Spirit. That's the Christian. He says, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, listen, that those who do such things, that means that, they, that that's the habit of their life. He says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, look at verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what the Holy Spirit produces, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The Holy Spirit always produces the fruit in the life of the believer. So the obedience is the evidence of the love. Turn back to John 14. Second brief observation is that the obedience to Christ's commands is the result of your love. It is the fruit of your love. The reason why it's the evidence is because your love for Christ is what produces the obedience. It's very important to get that right because there's a lot of people in the church that are playing church there's a lot of people that are playing Christianity. You can put on the Jesus t-shirt. You can get a Bible and bring it to the church. 
You can look like a Christian on the outside. You can look like you're obeying. But if you don't have the love for Christ, then it's not real obedience. And one of the best examples of this is our Lord. If you look over on the next page, chapter 15, verse 10, look what Jesus says. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Listen, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, same word, same idea, and Jesus says, and abide in his love. When Jesus lived his life, carried out his ministry, he obeyed the Father perfectly. And what motivated his obedience is his love for God, his love for the Father. This is what motivated him, and it's this love that motivated him to obey all the way to the point of the cross. Jesus says in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So it is this love for God, Jesus says, that produces this fruit of obedience. And here's why this is so important for your Christianity. It means that your obedience to Christ cannot be contrived. It cannot be mechanical. It cannot be superficial. It cannot be, let me pull myself up by the bootstraps. It must flow from a genuine love for Christ. And if you don't have that love for Christ, then you will never be obedient in this way. So, several, several things to think about here. Many people claim to be Christians, but have never been truly born again. Why is that so important? because it's in the new birth that you receive a new heart. And it's the new heart that produces the love for Christ. And so if you have not been born again, if you have not come to the end of yourself and your flesh has been crucified with Christ, if you have not come to the end of your rope and said, I give my life to you, Lord, that's, that's the evidence of being born again, then do not pass go. That is the very beginning of a genuine love for Christ. Now, some of you are believers. I have no doubt you have been born again. You love the Lord. But if you're honest with yourself, your love for Christ is not what it should be. Maybe you're like that church in Laodicea. You're neither hot nor cold. Maybe your affections for Christ have grown lukewarm. But it's time to go back to the basics. Christianity always must deal with us with basic things, basic things. And one of the most basic things as a Christian is that you have this genuine love for the Lord because that's what produces the obedience. So what I'm saying is don't immediately go to the fruit and say, Where's the fruit in my life? First, go to the heart. 
Is your love for Christ warm? Do you have the love for Christ in the heart? And that's where we have to go this morning. Your soul is made up of three parts. The mind, the affections, or, or the, the heart, and the will. And over and over what Jesus says is you have to love him with all three. All three. The mind, the affections, and the will. So I want to take time this morning to help you think about this. Think about your love for Christ, which will produce the obedience, and think about it in terms of those three aspects of ourselves. First, that we are to love and obey the Lord with our mind. Paul says that in the new birth, when you become a born-again believer, something supernatural happens to your mind. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that you have now the mind of Christ. You are given a mind that thinks like Christ, that you begin now to see the world in a spiritual way. I was talking to one of our members recently, and they said, when I prayed and trusted Christ, when I walked outside, it was like I saw the whole world differently. Anybody have that experience? When you were born again, it was like everything changed. You saw everything from a different perspective. That's the mind of Christ. And from that moment, you begin to see who God is. You begin to see the world the way that God sees the world. Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. When you become a Christian, you begin to plumb the depths of who God is. And it captivates you your mind becomes enchanted with the person of God. And as we saw last week in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is the essence of truth. He is the full revelation of God. So in wanting to know God and understand who he is, we set our gaze in our mind on the Lord Jesus Christ to understand the depths of God's character. Let me give you a couple quotes. This is from the Puritan John Owen. He says, it is only in Christ that we plumb the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So Christ is said to be the wisdom of God and to be made to us wisdom, end quote. One more, A.W. Tozer He says, now if there is any reality within the whole sphere of human experience that is by its very nature worthy to challenge the mind, charm the heart, and bring the total life to a burning focus, it is the reality that revolves around the person of Christ. So what Tozer and Owen are saying is that with your mind as a Christian, you begin to think about who Christ is, and what Christ has accomplished for you. And those two things begin to dominate your worldview. Who Christ is, truly God, truly man, what we're celebrating here at Christmas, that he lived a perfect life, a life that you could not live, 
and died the death that you could not die. And he died a substitutionary death for you and he overcame the grave. These facts and realities and their historical facts begin to dominate and control your entire worldview. So much so that it presses you into the truth. John says third, in 3 John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You begin to pursue the truth, walk in the truth, because the person of Christ has captivated your mind. Several implications here. First, you begin then to love God's word in your mind because scripture is the word of Christ. All scripture, Paul says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction that the man of God may, perfectly, may be perfectly equipped for every good work. We don't stand under the Bible because we worship the Bible. Sometimes I've heard that claim that if you're an evangelical, you're guilty of bibliolatry, that you worship the Bible. No. We stand underneath the Bible because it's the Word of God, and we love God. We stand underneath the Bible because it's the Word of Christ, and we love Christ. So that means that our affections are pointed to his word. Listen to what the psalmist says. David says in Psalm 19, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Is that how you feel about the word of God? That if somebody were to take this from you, you could not live? If somebody were to offer you a billion dollars in the bank account or a Bible, what would you take? The psalmist is saying that the word of God is, be, is more to be desired than any wealth that you could possibly imagine. The word of God becomes what you love most. It's what you feed off of. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is what Jesus lived on. It was his bread. He loved God's word. And second implication is that you obey God's word in the mind. That you bring your mind to the word and you obey God's word in the mind because you love the word. Psalm 119.5 says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Psalm 119.10, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Psalm 119.14, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. The Christian comes to the Bible and submits their life to the Bible. I remember one time I was out running and I was listening to, to Sproul, and I'll never forget this. It's one of the most profound things I think that Sproul said. Sproul said, I, I hear Christians all the time say, if the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And Sproul said, we need to get rid of that. Because really, it's if the Bible says it, that settles it. Really doesn't matter if you believe it or not. If it says it, that settles it. 
And then we bring our minds underneath the authority of Scripture. We don't go to the world to see what the world thinks. On the way in this morning, I was listening to a Christian band, Jars of Clay. And I used to love this group in the early 2000s. But this group has said, you know what? The Christian sexual ethic, what the Bible teaches is wrong, and what the world says is right. They didn't submit their minds to what God's Word says. This whole reality of transgenderism is very simple. Genesis chapter 1, God made man in his image, male and female. He created them. This is not rocket science. You don't need a Hebrew lexicon to understand that. You don't. It's male and female. So, some person up in D.C. says there's five genders. Who are you going with? Your mind is constrained by the Word of God. You remember Martin Luther? Martin Luther said, Rome, you're wrong on justification. You are justified by grace alone and Christ alone apart from works of the law. And the Roman authorities brought him to, to Worms, and they said, you're going to have to give an account before the Holy Roman Empire. You need to revoke what you have taught. You need to recant. You need to renounce it. And Luther stood up in front of the emperor, in front of the cardinals, in front of everyone, and he said, unless I am convinced by Scripture, my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. That's the Christian. You obey in the mind. What God's word says, what God's truth says, is what settles it for you. And therefore, the third implication is very easy to understand. That means that you reject worldly ideologies in your mind. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every argument and every opinion that goes against this, you reject. I don't care if it's evolution, Marxism, Mormonism, Buddhism, I mean, basically any ism that you can think of that posits a different way of salvation than the Lord Jesus Christ, that posits a different definition of sin than the Scripture does, you reject. And for whatever reason, I don't know what happened to Christians in the 21st century, but somewhere along the way we lost our discernment. And Christians just started saying, you know, anything and everything goes. And I think it's probably because most Christians don't know their Bibles. And they don't know what Christianity actually teaches. And so when some 
intelligent person on CNN begins to tell you that you're, for example, a racist just because the color of your skin, a lot of Christians bought it, right? The Bible is what constrains the mind and constrains our worldview, the truth. And the true Christian, the true Christian humbly submits their minds to the scriptures again and again and again. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me with your mind. But that's not enough. The mind is not enough. You must also love and obey Christ with your affections. I say the mind is not enough because there are so many guys throughout the history of the church that have gotten all the doctrine right have checked every single box. And you know what they lacked? Is an affection for Christ. They had all the theology. They could teach and have taught in the seminaries. Orthodoxy. But yet what they missed is a childlike love and affection for our Lord. I've seen it. I've seen it in pulpits. I've seen it in some of the people who pastored me, where it was all in the head and not in the affections. What is the affection? What does it mean when we talk about our desires, our affections? Let me give you a brief definition from John Piper, he says, spiritual affections are a spiritual form of emotion. That is, the heart is moved. Some kind of feeling happens that goes beyond thoughts or ideas or decisions. What Jesus is saying here, it's in these affections in the heart that you must have the deepest love for him, that you must treasure him. Let me give you some cross-references here. Jot these verses down. 1 Corinthians 16.22. Paul says this, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Matthew 10.37. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then this famous verse, Matthew 13.44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Listen, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It means that you say, I'm selling it all that I might gain Christ. You remember Paul? I count everything as rubbish that I might gain Christ. You come to see Christ as extremely and infinitely valuable in the heart. That he becomes the most valuable thing to you. That you genuinely love him. That you have a genuine affection for him. Another quote from John Owen, listen to this. Talking about this affection 
He says, this also shows clearly the difference between true and false Christians. Outwardly, both do the same things and enjoy the same privileges. In other words, you have the, you have the real Christians with the affections, and you have some that are faking it. He says, but now enter into their secret prayers and thoughts. What a difference there is. There, the saints hold communion with God. Hypocrites, for the most part, commune with the world and with their own lust. They listen to what their lust have to say, and then they make provision for them. The saints, on the other hand, are sweetly wrapped up in the love of their Father. Often it is impossible that believers should be better outwardly than those with rotten hearts. He says it's hard to tell. But this fellowship with the Father true Christians have, of which hypocrites know nothing. He says they have this feast in the Father's banqueting house in which hypocrites have no share. In the multitude of their thoughts, the comforts of God their Father revive their souls. So there's this intimate banquet, Owen says, this feast in which you think about God. You feast on him and you enjoy his communion. Listen, when you're at the nail salon, ladies, you're sitting there, where does your mind go? When you're on the deer stand or you're waiting for that guy who's taken forever in the tea box, where does your mind go? Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. What do you do with your mind? Several implications here. Several implications. First, the affection means that you love the Lord with your moral purity. That you love the Lord with your moral purity. You love the sweet fellowship of the Lord so much that you don't want to interrupt that communion by sinning and falling into sexual immorality. Let me just read a few verses. This is such an important theme in the New Testament, such an important theme. And in this culture, we need to address this. We need to think about this because this is one of the great threats to our affections for Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians Four, verse 3, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? Anything sexual in nature that does not involve your spouse, right? Anything. It could be a, a look, looking at something that you are not supposed to look at. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So you must know how to control your body. Look at verse seven. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, the Lord is holy, so you be holy. So it's in that affection for a holy God, affection for Christ who is holy, that you desire to walk in 
holiness in all of your conduct. Let me give you one more cross-reference. Shot this verse down. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in the body. Now we live in such a sexualized culture. This is a very difficult thing for us to walk in perfectly, isn't it? You turn on the TV and everything our culture is throwing at us is is pushing temptation before you. Satan is trying at every step to cause you to stumble. What is to motivate you to walk in purity? Well, what motivates you isn't just uh, a blind asceticism like the old monks who fled to the caves. What is to motivate you is the positive affection for the Lord. That you think in your mind, if I were to look at that, or if I were to do that, or if I were to think about her that way, that would compromise my communion, which is so sweet to me, with my Lord. The way that you fight the sin is with the joy. A lot of Christians have never figured this out. A lot of Christians think that the way that they fight their sin is with stoicism. Don't do that. It's bad. Well, on the one hand, there's truth to that. But, but the, the true motivation, right, is that love for Christ. Hebrews eleven twenty six says this. He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Listen, for he was looking to the reward. You you have to look to the reward. You have to say, Christ is more valuable to me. The kingdom is more valuable to me than this fleeting pleasure that Satan is offering me. So that's the first implication is that you love with your moral purity. Second is that you love Christ with your time. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says, redeem the time. You buy up the time. I've often heard it said that if you want to know what somebody really values about and cares about, look at their calendar and their bank account. What do you really love? What do you really love? Do you really love Christ, but yet you don't have time to spend with him in prayer? Do you really love Christ, but you say, I don't have time for a 10-minute devotion? Do you really love Christ, and yet you say, I don't have time to go worship with the Lord's people on the Lord's day? Your time is a great indicator of what you truly love and value. And oftentimes, the enemy of great is what? Good. I'm not acute. Most Christians aren't over in some meth lab doing something, right? Most Christians aren't out committing felonies. 
But most Christians are occupied with the good things that keep them from the great things. I had this silly little game on my phone, a little golf game. And you know what? I found myself, you know, just you tee off with flicking your thumb. You know, it's just silly. But I found myself playing this golf game. And I just, I just came to my senses one day. I'm like, what, what am I doing with my time? Is, is this truly honoring to the Lord? I could be thinking about him rather than, because these are addicting, addicting things, Right? And we all have to take stock of that. How are we spending our time? I'm going to step on some toes a little bit. This isn't legalism. This isn't legalism. But we have a Sunday night service here. We have a Sunday night service. You know, we spend here at Capitol basically two hours during the week worshiping the Lord, Sunday morning, Sunday night. You know what? Oftentimes, Sunday night service that's tough. That's tough. I'm a Cowboys fan. I go home, I'm watching the football game too. And oftentimes there's a part of me that says, you know what? I just wish I could sit here in this chair and not go back. I do. But it's the love for Christ. They say, I you know, the sweetness of singing those hymns and of spending time with God's saints, like we're going to do tonight. That sweetness overpowers my reluctancy, and the sweetness propels me to spend my time honoring the Lord. You fight the doldrums with the reward. And so, in everything, your purity, your time, and then third, think about this, your giving. You show your affection for Christ. This is the third implication, is that you give generously to the Lord. I'll give you another cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8, Paul says, he's talking about giving generously. He, say, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Did you hear what he said? He said the, the generosity is the fruit and evidence of your love. It shows that your love is genuine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So your giving to the Lord should always come from a heart of affection for Christ. Your giving is an offering to him. It's, it should not be done reluctantly. If you ever find yourself, you're paid on payday, and you say, oh man, I gotta give some money to the Lord now. If that's your heart, do you not think that the Lord sees that? If you don't really want to honor him with, with what he's given you, do you think the Lord doesn't know? What did Jesus say? Worship in spirit and in truth. you got to worship in the heart. If the giving, I don't care how much you give, 
is not out of an, a true affection for Christ. It's nothing. It's nothing. So you have to make sure your heart is right. But when your heart is right, what do you want to do? I want to give. You want to give because Christ has given so much to me and he's given so much to you. Do you want to give to Christ? And it's an evidence of your affection for him. Sometimes Christians ask, how much should we give? Should we give a tithe? Should we give you know, 10%? What should we give? That's, it, it's the wrong question. The question is, how much do you love him? How much do you care about him? So that's the affections. You love and obey in the mind. You love and obey with the affections. And then third, you love and obey with the will. And I, I know I have you over in First Thessalonians, so turn back to, to John 14, to John 14, 15. But you love and obey with the will. Now, the reason why we come to the will last is because the will is downstream from your mind and your affections. What I mean by that is this. What you think and what you love, is that what you do? What you think and what you love, is that what you do? You always do what you love, 100% of the time. 100% of the time. Whatever decision you make, whether it's right or left, you do that decision because you think about it and you love that decision. Always, always. So your will is controlled by your heart and by your mind. Mark 3.35, Jesus says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. John 7.17, 7, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 4.2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You begin to love the Lord in the will because you love him with the affections, you love him with your mind, and therefore you begin to walk in obedience. Obedience then becomes not something where you're just trying to put it on, where you're trying to force yourself, though at times it might be difficult, but obedience becomes the outflow of who you are. And that's what Jesus is saying here all along. If you love me, you will keep my commands. We've come full circle. If you have the love, you will do this. You will keep the commands. When uh, I went to seminary at, at Southern Seminary, and, and the president of Southern Seminary is Albert Moeller, and his first convocation address at Southern. Southern had gone off the rails. There was uh, no kidding heresy being taught in the school. There was all sorts of issues. And when, when Moeller came there in 93, he was basically tasked by the Board of Trustees to clean up the school and to get the school back to its doctrinal fidelity. And Moeller's convocation address was entitled, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. You often heard that phrase, right? 
Don't just stand there, do something, probably by your dad when he's changing the tire, you know, you're standing there. Don't just do something, you know, don't just stand there, do something, you know, get the lug nuts, whatever it is. And Moeller switched it. He said, don't just do something, stand there. And what he meant by that is, is we got to stop being just busy doing the work of the kingdom and come back to the basics of our first love of Christ and the truth. We got to get those things right. Because then, if we do that, then our doing something will be worthwhile. But you have to come back to looking at Christ, loving Christ, loving the truth. In a sense, that's what Jesus is saying. You must love him, and then you will keep his commands. But 10 years later, Moeller preached another sermon. He said, don't just stand there. Do something. We as Orthodox Christians who love Christ, who love Christ with our minds and our affections, must be diligent to obey him in our wills. You must do this. You must act. You must walk in holiness. It will be challenging. It will be difficult at times. You will be opposed. But in your heart, in your will, you must obey if you are a genuine Christian. Not perfectly, There is grace, there is mercy. We all fall in many number of ways, but yet you will strive to walk in obedience. Because, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Heavenly Father, oh, we love you. We love you so much in our mind, in our affections, and with our will, Lord. We want to think your thoughts. We want to love you with all of our affections so that it is seen in our moral purity, in the way that we spend our time, in the ways that we give. And Lord, may we walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, that we make godly decisions with our wills. Lord, may it be seen that we are your true disciples, that we love you, and that we keep your commandments. For your honor and your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.